Hello and welcome to the JS Bach Files, Episode 9. I'm Terence O'Grady and today we're going to take our first look at Bach's B minor Mass, one of the most famous of the composer's choral works. One might well begin a discussion of the B minor Mass by asking, why is a composer like Bach, a stalwart Lutheran if there ever was one, setting the traditional Latin text? But, of course, Luther's reforms never completely jettisoned the traditional Mass, and the Curia and Gloria were still in use in one version of the typical Lutheran Mass. Bach, earlier in his career, composed four of these short Masses, although all of them relied on earlier material, generally from older cantatas. Probably because of these borrowings, Bach scholars and historians in general have not always been sympathetic to those earlier works. The eminent Bach historian Charles Sanford Terry once described them as labored and unsatisfactory arrangements of unsuitable material. Scholars cannot quite agree on the circumstances behind the compositions of these works, these short masses, although they resemble each other fairly closely in structure, which suggests they may have been composed in close proximity to one another. All devote the first movement to a choral setting of the Kyrie, and then to divide the Gloria into alternating solo arias and choruses. There is some sophisticated contrapuntal writing going on here, especially in the Kyrie movements, but there are also some joyous, dance-like rhythms in some of the settings of the Gloria texts, and some of the borrowings may well have come from lost secular cantatas. So, before deciding to put together the monumental B minor mass in the last years of his life, Bach clearly had had some experience setting not only the Kyrie and Gloria movements of the mass, but he had also set the Sanctus text for special occasions. Furthermore, Bach had great respect for the great musical tradition which had historically been associated with the settings of the entire ordinary of the Mass, the five traditional movements including not only the Kyrie and Gloria, but also the Credo, Sanctus, and Agnus Dei. And Bach actively studied, and sometimes performed, Masses by composers dating as far back as Palestrina. So, it's no surprise that, late in life, he wished to produce a work which would stand comparison with those great works of the past. His first steps toward achieving that goal came as early as 1733, when he set the Kyrie and Gloria in quite elaborate style as a gift to the Dresden court. It's unlikely that Bach was angling for a new position there, since he knew his lack of experience in composing operas would have put him in a serious disadvantage at such an opera-loving court, but Bach was desirous of being given the primarily honorific title of court composer, which was, in fact, awarded to him three years later. At any rate, it was these two movements, the Kyrie and the Gloria, that established the starting point for Bach's great mass, and we'll start by taking a closer look at the first of these. The opening Kyrie, which constitutes the first movement of the work, is based on the traditional text, which in English says simply, Lord have mercy. In listening to any mass, or at least any pre-20th century mass, with the traditional text, most listeners expect a more or less solemn mood to prevail, at least initially. After all, the opening text is a pleading, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. So, understandably, the opening of Bach's Kyrie in B minor, a key which Bach scholar Malcolm Boyd believes was associated in Bach's mind with passive suffering, will naturally tend to strike most people as more somber to begin with, particularly at a slow tempo. 
but it soon becomes apparent that the mood in the opening of the piece will not simply be somber, but actually emotionally intense. The texture is quite full from the beginning, in five parts, soprano one and soprano two join with altos, tenors, and basses. We begin with all voices, with orchestral accompaniment, intoning the opening Kyrie in block chords, that is, all in the same rhythm. But the second sopranos immediately break out to make a passionate declaration, an arpeggiation of the diminished leading tone chord on the word eleison, and from that point on, all voices began to demonstrate more rhythmic and textural independence. The second measure brings with it another diminished chord, this one pointing us toward the subdominant, E minor. But even as we resolve to E minor, the first sopranos now, following the second's lead, lift up another arpeggiated solo cry, which holds over to become an anguished dissonance before finally resolving. We obviously can't stop to comment on every expressive gesture in just the first four bars of the movement, but the fact is that a number of emotional gestures are packed into the opening measures, multiple diminished chords, stabbing, or at the least, highly poignant dissonances, even a deceptive cadence, which when combined make for a very intense opening to the first movement. After this intense vocal introduction, Bach uses the orchestra alone to state the primary fugue theme of the movement and imitate it at the fifth, after which some of its more distinctive motives, which we'll address more specifically in a moment, are spun out through a series of closely related keys before settling back down in B minor for the return of the voices. When the voices enter, the tenor is the first to take up the fugue theme. Beginning with repeated notes, this is one of those Bach themes that seems to carry within it multiple layers or implied lines. In this case, the higher layer initially endeavors to ascend, while the lower constantly returns to the same low pitch, the dominant, giving the opening measures of the theme a very distinctive and highly recognizable shape. Here's a simplified example giving just the tenor line and a bass line to give it some harmonic context. You'll notice that while the beginning of the theme is distinctive for its melodic shape and its dual layers, the later measures show a definite increase in rhythmic activity, and some of the motives introduced there, especially when featuring one of Bach's favorite rhythms, a long, short, short combination of an eighth note followed by two sixteenths, in this case followed by a notable ascending leap, will also play a significant role later, especially in episodes where the entire fugue subject may be absent, but Bach still wishes to reference it through its motives. 
Three and a half bars after the tenor has introduced the subject, the alto imitates it at the fifth, and from that point on, the imitation proceeds as one might expect, through multiple entrances by all five voices, with the orchestra increasing the contrapuntal activity of its accompaniment, which, as you'd also expect, frequently draws on motives from the subject, through various key changes. There is some episodic relief, passages where the imitation itself drops off and new motives come forward, but even these sections are permeated with motives from the original subject, often spun out and developed in extremely creative ways into great effect. Depending on the motive chosen for development at any particular point, the textures vary considerably, with some passages having a more distinctive rhythmic quality. The choral counterpoint is interrupted eventually by a short orchestral interlude, which presents the familiar motives, but in intertwining voices and while touching briefly on various different keys. After this interlude, the fugue theme is reintroduced by the basses, and the invitation begins again, first from the tenors, then altos, and eventually everyone, with the entrances sometimes overlapping between the voices, which tends to increase the sense of urgency moving forward. Familiar motives now appear to take on a new identity, and the final statement of the theme comes in the basses, solidly reinforced by the orchestra and octaves before the movement finally comes to an end. The fugal section is a lengthy one, and we'll hear just the opening, sung by the tenors and the first few entrances from the other voices. So now we've heard this fugue theme treated twice, once by the orchestra and once by the full five-part chorus at some length. Can it stand up to this much repetition? I think it does, quite nicely in fact, because it's such a strong theme with a distinctively emotional quality. But Bach clearly recognized the need to provide strong contrast at this point, and our next movement accomplishes just that. For the Christe eleison, we hear a cheerful, almost operatic-sounding duet aria, usually at an allegro tempo, for two sopranos in D major, one that would probably have appealed greatly to the Dresden audience for which this work was intended. First, let's hear the equally cheerful little instrumental introduction that serves as a returning ritornello later on.
Following this opening instrumental section, the two sopranos enter with a beguiling melody sung mostly in thirds and sixths in homophonic rhythm, a very sweet, almost sensuous sound. And the opening four bars are quite lively, rhythmically speaking, as well, and increase in rhythmic momentum as they proceed. The next four bars introduce a new idea. The first soprano's phrase opens with a sustained note followed by a swiftly descending line, a figure which is then imitated at the fifth by the second soprano. This new idea is spun out, occasionally reverting to the sweet-sounding thirds and sixths in the vocal harmony as we modulate to closely related keys. We'll hear the opening of the vocal section and both of these two important musical ideas. As the movement continues, a variant of the opening theme eventually recurs twice, once in an abbreviated version and once with both of the parts described earlier intact. A variant of the introduction slash ritornello returns as well, landing us in B minor, where the second melodic section, the one involving imitation between the two sopranos, makes a return and heads us back to our home tonic of D major. A final version of the opening homophonic section, now embellished with some clever new syncopations between the soloists, ushers us to the final instrumental ritornello, which ends the movement in D major. Even though Bach seems to be emulating the lighter operatic style popular in Dresden at the time, there are still features that mark this movement as distinctively Bachian, including the harmonic restlessness and chromatic details and, as the movement proceeds, the rhythmic independence between the voices. And, of course, Bach's instrumental accompaniment, even in this style, is considerably more complex than one might expect from other purveyors of the popular operatic style of the day. We move on now to the third movement, which is the second Kyrie section. In many mass settings of the period, the opening Kyrie eleison would simply be repeated, perhaps with some variation, to round off the traditional text. But in this case, and apparently in keeping with Dresden's musical practices in this regard, Bach has the chorus introduce an entirely new movement in F-sharp minor, one which could hardly present more of a contrast with the previous one. The first Kyrie, although somewhat austere in its broader outlines, nevertheless had an emotional quality about it due to the distinctive nature of its theme. This setting of the Kyrie eleison text is once again fugal, but composed in the still antico style, that self-consciously archaic style that Bach adopted from time to time, meant to summon up the dignity and severity of late Renaissance choral polyphony. The opening, rather meandering, fugal theme operates in a narrow space, never rising more than a perfect fourth above the tonic F-sharp. Here are the opening measures.
You'll notice that the fugal entrances don't always arrive non-stop one after another. There are sometimes a few measures in between where earlier ideas are spun out or extended. You'll also notice that the orchestra mainly doubles the vocal parts without adding its own layer of textural complexity, very typical of the stil antico. And the opening of the theme, with its chromatically lowered second scale degree, immediately hints at a more exotic modal element, although a few bars later were securely in F-sharp minor. Other important motives emerge as the movement continues and modulates into other tonal areas. As we move briefly to F-sharp major, a new idea is introduced as the word Kyrie is rearticulated, a syncopated idea beginning on the weak part of the beat, followed by a descending line heard first in the tenor, which is then subject to overlapping invitation in alto, soprano, and bass parts in turn. my excerpt before the new idea to which I referred is introduced, you might have noticed the powerful ascending chromatic surge in the bass line doubled by the orchestra. While this movement may evoke the older Antico style, that doesn't mean that it's completely devoid of more modern dramatic gestures. As you could hear right at the end of my excerpt, this new motive surrenders quickly to our opening fugal subject. But the new idea proves to be persistent, recurring a few bars later in the alto and taken up again by the other voices, and then again in A major, led by the sopranos high in their range, right before the original fugal theme is presented for the final time in recadence on F-sharp major. With these first three movements, the opening Kyrie eleison, the Christe eleison, and the second Kyrie eleison, Bach employs three different keys, B minor, D major, and F sharp minor, three tonal centers which not coincidentally outline a B minor tonality. Although as the work proceeds through the different movements, we'll find ourselves in D major as much as in B minor. More significantly, the opening three movements exploit three significantly different musical styles. Stylistic contrasts on this level were by no means common in the period, and although it can be attributed to some extent to Bach's desires to please the taste of the Dresden court in the opening Curia and Gloria movements, the fact is that stylistic versatility permeates a great deal of the B minor mass as a whole, making it, in fact, one of its most distinctive features. While there's no evidence that the Kyrie and Gloria movements were in fact performed at the Dresden court, Bach did make other use of three movements of the Gloria, adapting them for use as a standalone cantata for a Christmas service at the St. Thomas Church. Let's take a look at the opening section of the Gloria, for which the text in Latin is simply Glory in Excelsis Deo, Glory to God in the Highest. In terms of mood, it is as grandiose and jubilant as one might expect with a brash orchestral ritonello featuring, featuring an exuberant fanfare-like theme arrayed in symmetrical, almost dance-like rhythms, perfect for highlighting the three trumpets and timpani that dominate the sonority. 
Following the initial fanfare-like motive, a new idea is introduced, a sustained tone followed by a descending passage, an idea that will also play an important role as the movement unfolds. The altos lead the way when the voices enter, and there's a bit of imitation as the tenor replies an octave lower, and snatches of imitation come and go, usually separated by brief ritornellos or fragments of ritornellos. Here's the opening of the Gloria, including the opening orchestral ritornello and the opening imitation between alto and tenor. The second Ritornello idea, the sustained note followed by a mostly descending line, also plays an important role. It is heard instrumentally in the intervening mini Ritornello sections and is also bounced around between the voices, serving to provide a little contrast between the more recognizable statements of the opening fanfare-like motive or recognizable variants of that motive. Although we naturally touch on different keys as the piece progresses, the orchestral ritornello in its original key of D major does return, but it does so almost clandestinely, following an appearance of an abbreviated variant of the original theme that starts in the tenors in A major. This abbreviated variant is subject to a bit of imitation and then makes its way back to D major, where a proper ritornello is heard. But while it is a proper and immediately recognizable ritornello, it is not performed by the orchestra alone, as would, for example, be likely in a solo concerto movement based on ritornello form, but with the overlay of all five vocal parts. Of course, Bach could have rounded off this first section of La Gloria with a straightforward orchestra-only restatement of the ritornello theme but he presumably wanted to underline the contrast between the text Gloria in Excelsis Deo and the grandiose musical gesture that accompanies that text with the text Et in Terra Pax and Peace on Earth, with its much more subdued musical setting. At the words Et in Terra Pax, Homnibus, and on Earth, Peace and Goodwill to All People, we change to Common Time, a more measured, meditative, more lyrical mood, and a new theme that dominates the entire section in one form or another.
This section begins in G major, moves quickly to E minor as the theme weaves its way through the voices. After another modulation to A minor, we hear a very expressive orchestral interlude that continues to spin out the original theme. After a somewhat surprising modulation to B-flat major, the theme returns in the first sopranos and is imitated at the fifth by the altos, as the sopranos continue with a lovely countermelody of running sixteenth notes. As the tenors enter with the theme and the altos take over the running sixteenth notes, the sopranos line becomes increasingly characterized by large, almost boisterous leaps. By the time the basses complete the imitative cycle, the texture has become quite busy, almost exuberantly so. The theme eventually returns in its original homophonic texture, but now the trumpets and timpani make increasingly powerful contributions, and by the end of the movement, the mood has become almost as triumphant as in the Gloria. This section is one of those which is generally thought to have been based on a previous choral work, probably a cantata, but in this case the precise cantata from which the music was taken can't be traced. So, it's another example of the so-called parody technique, which implies, at least in reference to Bach's works, taking the music from a pre-existing piece and reusing it with a different text. Daniel R. Malamed, whose excellent book, Listening to Bach, the Mass in B Minor in the Christmas Oratorio, describes this process and variations of it, and also makes the point that the original source for the Et in Terra Pax section was probably originally in Ritornello form, beginning with an opening instrumental Ritornello, having at least one recurrence of that Ritornello, and most likely closing with the same Ritornello or some version of it. This is a form we've observed in several works in these episodes. Why was the opening ritonello left out in this case? Presumably because Bach desired that the contrast between the powerful conclusion of the glory in Excelsis Deo and the more restrained et interopax section would be as direct and immediate as possible. By the way, Malamud discusses other similar examples in his discussion of the B minor mass, and since we're not going to deal at great length with the possible relationships of these mass movements to earlier models in these episodes, his book might prove to be very helpful to anyone wanting to pursue that angle. After the relatively restrained, at least initially, in at Terra Pax section, the next solo aria reverts to the lighter and somewhat less complex operatic style heard earlier in the Christe Eleison. 
One expects the Laudamus Te text to be a cheerful, if not jubilant, affair, and this does not disappoint. In a brightly colored A major, it features a simple but catchy introductory ritonello, featuring an obligato violin solo playing over restrained orchestral accompaniment, particularly notable for its distinctive rhythms, including among them a repeated pattern of 16th, 8th, 232nd, 16th, 8th, 232nd, which you'll hear in just a minute along with other important ideas that will play a major role after the soprano soloist enters. But, despite its rhythmic energy and intricate passage work from the solo violin, there's still a sense of restraint here and an unexpected diminished seventh chord, which clouds the otherwise crystal-clear tonality right before the final cadence. Another important passage that stands out in the opening Vertinello, and will play an important role later on, is the sweeping ascending line in the fifth bar, the soloist repeating tight little rhythmic curls as it ascends, double the tenth below by the orchestra's bass line. After this very attractive opening Vertinello of just twelve bars, the second soprano enters with a novelty of its own, a series of gradually ascending sixteenth notes with trills on each of the four beats of the measure, aided and abetted by the solo violin and light accompaniment from the other strings. While the soprano's opening mode of at least the repeated trills is not anticipated by the solo violin's introductory ritonello, it turns out that almost everything else is, including some motives in which the violin soloist takes the lead and is echoed by the soprano. After the soprano runs through the standard text, translated as, we praise you, we bless you, we adore you, we glorify you, with a little word repetition, of course, and, understandably, some more ambitious melismas on the phrase, we glorify you, there's a partial recurrence of the ritonello. There is also a contrasting middle section, beginning in the relative minor of F-sharp minor, in which the soloist repeats the text. There are some new elements here, but plenty of familiar ones as well. After another partial ritonello, the second half of the middle section finishes up in C-sharp minor. Then, naturally, the opening section comes back, basically a repetition of the original for the first six bars, before spinning out on its own, embellishing and extending the original ideas. A quick final ritonello, which also embellishes earlier ideas, takes us to the final cadence. We'll hear an excerpt beginning with the entrance of the soprano soloist. Thank you. 
Movement 6 is a continuation of the Gloria section, which employs the text, in English translation, we give you thanks for your great glory. For this fairly brief movement, we return again to a four-part chorus in the Stilantico style and a fugal texture based primarily on an opening theme which unfolds with overlapping entries and within a narrow range. If anything, the overall effect is even more archaic and austere-sounding than in Kyrie II, with chromatic flavoring almost non-existent here. The orchestra, two flutes, oboes, bassoon, strings, and continuo as usual, mostly replicates the vocal parts, as is customary in this style, although trumpets and timpani do eventually enter with independent parts, allowing for a somewhat more rousing conclusion to the movement. We'll hear the opening of the movement and the beginning of the fugal imitation. This movement was based on a cantata Bach had composed two years earlier, 1731, on the occasion of the election of a new Leipzig town council, a circumstance that would have called for exactly the sort of dignified counterpoint which Bach obviously thought appropriate for this section of the Mass, in part because of the text, and in part because he presumably wanted to balance the more cheerfully operatic tone of the previous movement with one of greater weight especially since the duet aria which follows is also in a lighter, more graceful mode. The English translation for number eight, number seven in the score, the Domine Deus section of the Gloria, is Lord God, Heavenly King, God the Father Almighty, Lord the Only Begotten Son, Jesus Christ Most High, Lord God, Lamb of God, Son of the Father. This delightful, very gallant-sounding duet in G major between soprano one and tenor with marvelous flute obligato accompaniment is one of the most charming and popular movements of the Mass and may well have originally come from an earlier cantata. This movement, like the earlier Christe Eleison, employs smooth, gentle lyrical lines and sweet-sounding parallel thirds and sixths in the vocal harmony, and this type of duet has been referred to by any of a number of commentators as a love duet between Jesus Christ and the soul. In this case, the effect is made even stronger by the opening use of the delicate, sweet-sounding solo flute. But does the text here suggest such a setting? Would it not be equally possible to reflect God's power with a massive choral and orchestral texture, possibly including regal-sounding trumpet fanfares and rousing timpani barrages? Possibly, but Marcus Rathi and others have suggested a more theologically-based justification for the choice of musical style here. Taking the position that while this sweetly lyrical musical approach might not seem appropriate given the first part of the text, it is perfectly appropriate for the second. If one considers the fact that Christ, regardless of his power, surrendered his life as an act of love and redemption for each individual, the musical setting seems more feasible. And, of course, the need for dramatic and textural contrast at this point makes a strong argument for such a setting as well. Still, it's probably unwise to argue too strongly against a theological motivation on Bach's part given his faith and the relationship of his art to that faith. 
The theme for the opening ritornello begins with a familiar long, short, short, long rhythm articulating a descending line. There's a bit of canonic imitation, the flute answered by a muted solo violin, but the flute proceeds independently for the most part, accompanied lightly by the rest of the orchestra. There are a number of prominent, lightly dissonant appoggiatoras or accented non-harmonic tones evident as the melody unfolds, but while Bach's use of non-harmonic tones can at times add great emotional intensity to a piece, in this case, the mild dissonances sound almost playful, not unusual for the gallant style. The tenor leads the way as the voices enter with a new version of the opening original theme, with the soprano providing an invitation at the fifth, but for the most part the voices proceed homophonically, in the same or close to the same rhythmic values and in similar phrasing. But while the voices are joined rhythmically, they actually employ different texts, the tenor beginning with the Domine Deus section, Lord God Heavenly King, and the soprano with the Domine Fili section, Lord the Only Begotten Son Jesus Christ, presumably to reflect the duality of Christ, both God and man. After a miniature ritornello only two bars long, the voices return, this time the soprano leading the way, and the pattern is repeated with the soprano taking over the exact melodic line that began the piece, imitated by the tenor. Just four bars later, it's the tenor's turn to lead the way, and in that manner, little patches of imitation continue to relieve the mostly homophonic texture from time to time. Still, as the piece proceeds and the flute interjections alternate with vocal phrases, and as the lilting phrases of soprano and tenor echo each other, the piece sounds increasingly like the coquettish love duet it is often described as being. After a full-fledged recurrence of the ritornello and a shift to E minor, we hear a contrasting section exploiting a new, mildly syncopated idea and a slight darkening of the overall mood. By the way, this mildly syncopated idea is not actually new, but it just appears so in this context, not an unusual ploy for Bach. And with the soprano and tenor finally agreeing on the same text, Domini Deus, Agnus Dei, we can almost certainly hear this as a contrasting middle or B section that will eventually yield again to the charmingly melodic opening theme. But in fact, it never does, and coming to a stop on B minor, it leads directly into the next section. We'll hear the opening of the movement with the flute-dominated ritornello and a bit of the soprano-tenor duet. Thank you. 
The next movement is the key tolis in B minor, marked lento, with a four-part chorus along with two flutes, strings, and continuo. The text, in English translation, is, He who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. So it's not surprising that the general tone is rather somber. The primary theme is heard first in the altos, a descending B minor triad, which is followed by an expressive ascending minor sixth, a gesture that is to play a very important role as the piece proceeds. The melody then moves gradually back down the scale, ending six bars later, harmonized by a dominant chord. The overlapping imitative counterpoint begins in the tenors, up a fifth as usual, and is followed by sopranos and basses. But, as expressive as the melody is, the complex harmony created by the dissonant suspensions of the intertwining voices and the orchestral accompaniment is far more extraordinary, so much so that, harmonically speaking, this may be the most remarkable movement in the entire Mass. This is another so-called parody movement, the themes taken largely from an earlier cantata, BWV 46. The original had involved a setting from the Book of Lamentations, a serious business to be sure, but in this version, particularly in reference to the sins of the world, the depth of emotional intensity is extraordinary. As the movement proceeds, new motives are introduced and flowing 16th note passages in the flutes provide a subtle but particularly elegant countermelody to the choral interplay. And of course, the original theme is never far from our ears and the mood remains consistent to the end. We'll hear the opening of the movement. The next section of the Gloria, the Key Sadus, completes the idea introduced in the Key Tolis with the text in English translation, He who sits on the right hand of the Father, have mercy on us. But the mood is quite different here. The text is set as an aria for alto with oboe de more, strings, and continual accompaniment with the oboe dominating the opening ritonello and playing a highly significant role throughout. The opening ritonello melody, again in B minor, and in a quicker 6-8 meter, even labeled jig-like by some commentators, is distinctive for its use of two motives. The first involves three sixteenth notes employing a lower neighbor tone in the middle, starting on the weak part of the beat. And the second, a large descending leap, sometimes a fifth, sometimes a fourth, before breaking into an expressive flow of lyrical sixteenth notes. Both of these ideas, the lower neighbor figure and the descending leap, 
play an important role later, sometimes independently of each other, and often in conjunction with subtly syncopated rhythmic figures and flowing 16th note patterns. After a somewhat unexpected and rather brief shift in tempo to adagio toward the end of the movement, the original quicker tempo returns and a passage of mostly flowing 16th notes in which the oboe duets with the alto in parallel thirds takes us close to the end of the piece, although the final measures go to the solo oboe with orchestral accompaniment. Here's the opening ritornello and the beginning of the first vocal section. The next section of the glory is the quonium, translated as, For you alone are holy, you alone are the Lord, you alone are most high, Jesus Christ. The text is set as an aria in D major for solo bass in 3-4 time with an unusual accompanying sonority, a horn marked specifically as a hunting horn in box score, and a pair of bassoons along with continuo. The distinctive timbral nature of the movement is evident right away in the opening ritornello as the horn immediately engages us with bold, almost heroic gestures, large leaps, octaves, sevenths, and fifths, both ascending and descending against the smoother bassoon duet. When the bass solo enters, he does so not by quoting the same tune already presented in the ritornello as we might expect, but with a new theme, also rather bold and dignified. In fact, the whole movement might be heard as an example of Bach's stalwart, militant Lutheran style, familiar from some of the cantatas, even if applied here to a traditional Catholic mass text. Here are the opening bars of the bass solo's first statement. Sanctus, 
the bass soloist eventually appropriates the opening horn motive from the ritonello in duetting passages with the horn, and, after an internal ritonello, introduces some new melodic and rhythmic ideas of its own, in a contrasting section which also, predictably, introduces some new keys. But eventually, the bass soloist returns with its original theme back in D major, and a final instrumental ritonello takes us directly into the next movement. The final section of the Gloria Cum Sanctu Spiritu in English translation is With the Holy Spirit and the Glory of God the Father, Amen. It features the full choral and instrumental contingent, five-part chorus, three trumpets, two flutes, two oboes, two bassoons, strings, and continuo. And brief though the text is, this final section predictably pulls out all the stops, with its faster tempo marked vivace, the brighter orchestral timbre combines with virtuosic choral writing to produce a movement of remarkable exuberance. The movement begins with bits of imitation between the voices, but quickly focuses more on massive homophonic effects, including sustained chords against bustling orchestral accompaniment featuring heraldic trumpet fanfares. Some new rhythmic ideas are introduced along the way, but before long the voices are chasing each other around with rapid sixteenth note vocal runs in broad sequential surges, passages that would challenge even the most virtuosic choir and might be almost impossible to render with any precision by an overly large ensemble. Here's the opening section. After 37 bars, we encounter a spirited fugal section featuring a long and formidable fugue subject beginning in the tenors with a somewhat stripped-down orchestral accompaniment, and from that point, imitation between the voices beginning in A major but soon working back to D major dominates for several measures, eventually producing a masterful modulation to B minor with chords that seem both striking and yet inevitable in typical Bachian fashion.
The fugal section comes abruptly to a halt, and we hear a new ritronello, which you heard just a little bit of at the end of my example, in which flute and oboe introduce some clever new ideas, before yielding to a return to the massive homophonic choral effects featuring all five voices. But it turns out that this is just a break in the fugal action, and the fugue theme returns in F-sharp minor, the first stop on a journey through several tonal centers. And as the fugal theme is split up and tossed around, we encounter some contrapuntal passages of almost staggering complexity until we finally return to the homophonic choral effects that began the movement, now punctuated by some surprising dramatic chords. From here to the conclusion of the movement, we mix the familiar running 16th note passages with powerful ascending sequences, flashing trumpets, fragments of motives bouncing back and forth between the voices, and a final homophonic declaration of Amen. Okay, that's it for this episode of the J.S. Bach Files. In the next episode, we'll take a look at the remaining movements from the B Minor Mass.